Of days gone by, of bubble lights and tinsel, the smell of pine needles and the taste of all those Christmas cookies. There was also the warmth of the fireplace and the anticipation of Christmas gifts. Now, it was the gifts, of course, that really captured the attention of my siblings and me. We simply couldn't wait to open them. Sometimes we'd find them ahead of time in our parents' bedroom, and we had to feign surprise. We tended to overact. I can't believe it. Lincoln Logs, Daddy, my life will never be the same. <laughs> Mama, thank you for the sacrifices you made to make this miracle possible. But there was one part of Christmas, our family's Christmas, that I really disliked. Before we could open our presents, my dad just had to read the biblical Christmas story and then say a prayer, a long prayer. We seem to pray for every person on earth. Now, as a child, I thought this was cruel and unusual punishment. All I was thinking about was Santa Claus, not some baby born in a barn. Then to top it off, we'd go visit my grandparents on both sides of the family. What a sight, more presents under the aluminum tree with a color wheel for dramatic effect. <laughs> I could hardly wait to dive in. Only one thing prevented me from doing so. You may have guessed it. We had to endure the drone of the Christmas story again and had even longer prayers. As I grew older, the whole saga had become unbelievable. It is, as I hope most of you know, the Sunday before Christmas. It may be your last chance to sit in a comfy chair rather than behind the steering wheel, to hear words and music rather than cash registers and seasonal hip hop. My name is Rudolph and my nose is red. I'm coming your way, so get up in the bed. All the little elves have loaded their sled. Santa's in the bathroom looking at for meds. <laughs> I'll keep my day job, thank you. <laughs> it's a time, this time of year is a time to slow down. Slow your pace before you race home to prepare for house guests and to think about the saga that drives all of this momentum toward the one holiday of the year that could cause your early demise. <laughs> now, ironically, this saga is about birth, but its trappings are enough to put us all in our graves. We know this, yet most of us buy into the rampant consumerism that characterizes Christmas simply because the saga itself holds no meaning in this day and age. So we fill the void with gift giving and cookie baking, hospitality and caroling, often singing about an historical event that we no longer believe in. I mean, what else is there for religious liberals to do at Christmastide? 
Now, I don't know about you, but if I read two conflicting stories about a single event, I become skeptical about the veracity of either account. I wonder if the truth lies somewhere in the middle or if there is no truth to be found, period. Skepticism keeps me from letting others do all the thinking for me. It may even lead me to a library to conduct research on the matters at hand. But what if the conflicting accounts were written purposely to confuse the reader? What if the whole point of having different stories is to induce skepticism? Now that would make for some good writing that might just lead us to ever new conclusions. Why it could almost keep the story relevant. For as long as there is a skeptic like me, there is at least one more way of looking at the same old story. And when it comes to Christmas, this is exactly what we find. We have been left with only two major accounts of the birth of the babe in Bethlehem. Neither author was an eyewitness to the subject matter, although both write as if they were on the scene reporters. Miraculous virgin birth, the story at six, and each account is so skewed to the whims and wants of the res their respective readership, Jews on the one hand and Gentiles on the other, that it is virtually impossible to determine truth from fiction. Wouldn't you have to be mindless to believe either tale, the one in the book of Matthew or the one in the book of Luke, given the discrepancies they present if they are read literally and compared line for line? This is where most, most orthodox believers misstep. I do not think the gospel accounts were ever meant to be the god-awful truth or the last word and testament. Perhaps they were actually written with skeptics in mind. Perhaps there is no end to the meaning that can be mined. For those of you who pretend not to know the story of the birth of the baby and Christmas, I'll compress the two versions into one and offer a primer for the season in which we find ourselves. It starts with two lovers, apparently engaged, who conceive a child out of wedlock. The man named Joseph wants to dump his woman, Mary, as men are often wont to do when the pregnancy test exhibits the wrong color. Fortunately for the two of them, angels appear and insist that Joseph is not the father. <laughs> Thanks, Maury. <laughs> and that the child Mary is carrying was conceived supernaturally. Relieved, our two lovers venture to Bethlehem to be counted as part of a regional census. Unable to find formal lodging, they came upon either a cave or a barn and snuggle in with the resident flock. Mary has her baby, and birth is always a holy moment no matter where or when it happens. 
and visitors soon appear at the manger's side. The visitors included three astrologers, it's true, translated as wise men in the text. They may have been neither. They may have been neither men or wise, who apparently gaze upon a bright star and follow it to its source. They brought gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, which was, were no doubt welcomed given the earthy environment of the birthing chamber. Shepherds were said to have been alerted by an angelic choir high up in the heavens. And during all of this cosmic commotion, the two most important words in the Christmas saga were uttered. Fear not. Fear not. If only those who promote the reason for the season embodied these two simple words, then we could actually live up to the example the baby set for us. For in these two words are found the whole intent of religion. You can live well without another word of it, so long as you have these two. Fear not. Now, we could easily stop here, but the Christmas story reveals so many other affirmations that can be seen with the skeptical eye. Read between the lines and between differing accounts, and you'll find a treasure trove of new meaning in an old story. The Christmas story affirms that the spiritual world is nowhere but here as opposed to the traditional view that projects spirituality away from us and locates it elsewhere. Moreover, it affirms the interconnection between nature's exterior and humankind's inner life. The birth took place in a stinky, lowly, run-of-the-mill manger amid worldly creatures under heavenly stars to working-class parents. They raised a boy and not a heavenly host, puts this saga smack dab in the middle of our own everyday existence. The destination was the little town of Bethlehem and not some otherworldly afterlife. Mary pondered her dire straits in her heart. That is, she looked for answers within for life's dilemmas and not beyond her own imagination. Visitors dropped by, not because the baby was necessarily special, but because all babies are special and worthy of our time and attention. The Christmas story could just have well been your story and mine. Perhaps that is the whole point. Now, taking this a little further, the Christmas story affirms that religion is not opposed to the material world, but embraces it, all of it. The appetites, sexuality, sensuality, the body, the five senses. Life is dressed in gold, bathed in frankincense, and steeped in myrrh. There is nothing particularly celestial about hearing, bearing, bearing a child in a barn or cohabitating in a cave. But there is something very human about dressing it up like a five-star hotel. 
In other words, the meaning of life is life itself. Life's significance is not measured by something outside of life. Instead, it is measured by how we live and how we appreciate life on its own terms. The Christmas story also affirms that religion is self-actualizing. That is to say, religion comes into being by being believed in. Any particular belief to which we choose to adhere becomes true by the fact that we believe it. The self-actualizing process is the great equalizer among belief systems and the religions that rely on them. Both Mary and Joseph believed they were visited by an angel who, in turn, convinced the couple that Mary had been impregnated by a spirit rather than by her fiancé. The astrologers and shepherds who visited the newborn believed that they were in the presence of a divine baby, an infant. And with time, other believers likewise felt the same, even though they had never been to the manger. It was Kierkegaard who touted objective certainty, in which we are free to impose our subjective truths if only because there is no possibility of our being shown to be right or wrong. In today's world, we call this phenomenon self-fulfilling prophecies. And again, when it comes to religion, perhaps that is the whole point. In the Analytics of Confucius, is recorded a conversation between the master and his disciple, Zi Lu. Zi Lu asks how to serve the spirits and the gods. Confucius replies, not being able to serve other people, how would you be able to serve the spirits? Zi Lu says, may I ask about death? And Confucius replies, not understanding life, how could you understand death? The Christmas story, not unlike the philosophy of Confucius or even Hegel and Nietzsche, affirms that the essence and ultimate value of religion is the value of life itself. Religion reminds us of what really counts, and it is not fidelity to the gods. Rather, it is living well. Now, our, our ideals may certainly help us live well, but our ideals can easily be warped by materialism and self-centeredness. Living well is not about comfort or luxury. Living well means living a rich life and not necessarily a wealthy life. Living well, as John Stuart Mill argued, is not just taking pleasure, but is taking pleasure in the right things. Mary lives well, not by five-star standards, but because she believes she is favored by the holy. For her, this is more than enough. 
By living well, Mary is adopting a framework in which all sorts of possibilities open up that may not have been evident before. Even though the facts of her world, a newborn son, a carpenter husband, a life on the edge, remain the same. But everything changes for Mary. Her whole world is born anew. And again, when it comes to religion, perhaps that is the whole point. We can make life new and we can settle for familiarity. We can make changes and stay stuck. We can believe in the baby and still be skeptical about his role in the world. Says Camus, con contradiction is perhaps the subtlest of all spiritual sources. Or how about John Updike who wrote, it may be as some extreme saints have implied that beneath the majesty of the infinite, believers and non-believers are exactly alike. The false dichotomies we create to separate the holy and the profane do not stand up to the truth that insists that they are one and the same. Our desire to categorize and then castigate those with whom we differ flies in the face of the hope that all may become one. It can even divide us against ourselves. Says Saul Bellows, the quest is one and the same. We are all drawn towards the craters of the spirit to know what we are and what we are for, to know our purpose. What are you being drawn to at the turning of the year? Is everything black or white or is everything black and white? The contradictions of Christmas allow you to write a new ending to an old story. And maybe to your own story as well, which of course are one and the same. The neuroscientist Patricia Smith Church, writing about her encounter with the Dalai Lama, explains, now the profoundly interesting thing about the Dalai Lama was this. He had no dogma. He was willing to change his mind about anything, depending upon the nature of the evidence. In other words, His Holiness, the 14th Dalai Lama, the foremost leader of millions of Buddhists, is a skeptic. He determines truth through his own experiences and convictions. Likewise, the Zen Buddhist tradition, which includes Thich Nhat Hanh, he admonishes us this way. He says, do not think the knowledge you presently possess is changeless, absolute truth. Avoid being narrow-minded and bound to present views. He says, to me, this is the most essential practice of peace. To me, skepticism is a tool for religious growth and learning rather than a hindrance. It opens up possibility and teases out new meaning for holidays like Christmas. 
It encourages us to think for ourselves. It puts its faith in humankind to come and reason together. It challenges and affirms what we know to be right in life. It leads to a life of both and instead of either or. And it gives us the chance to make the Christmas story our own. Merry Christmas to those who believe and especially to those who don't. This is one story that was written for us all to the glory of life. Thank you.